We never know where life will lead us or what may hinder us along the way. But while every day can feel like one big question mark, it doesn't have to. With the right insights, strategies, and solutions from Western and Southern Financial Group, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco. And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo back here with Sam Monson. It is July and we're having all sorts of fun, Sam. And somebody presented a great topic for us to cover today. Yeah, we'll cover a couple of different people. We're building this whole show off emails that have come in. And that's what it's all about. We want more emails. That could be you. If you're thinking, hey, I've got a great topic for a podcast, but I never hear it anywhere. Send it into us. We'll steal it. It could be like, all right, compare... NFL players to 1980s wrestlers or something like that. That would be a great show. Just saying, that'd be a good, that'd be a suggestion. It might make it, it, it might be not. a suggestion, yeah. But um, on today's if, show, if you ahead. want it, the email is nflpodcast at pff.com. To be fair, we'll steal the idea and credit you. You know, we're not just going to rip it off and be like, hey, I came up with this great idea over the weekend while I was doing nothing in particular with the PFF emails. Um, so, yeah, send us emails. Also, we've had a lot of great ideas come in in terms of uh, what we should do for the next charity drive. So we'll be doing minor league Sam dressed up as Steve uh, at some point when you drag all your crap back from Massachusetts. Then we'll have to, <clears throat> then we'll have to come up with the next thing to do. Uh, we've had people giving us ideas of the charity. We've also had people come up with ideas of like the forfeit, the thing that we should be doing. Um, a, lot of, a lot of ones I don't have any interest in. Yeah, well, there's a few that require a lot of setup. And look, this is not a setup intensive kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Now, you, I can see why you'd be led astray, given that it's taken us to like two months for you to get a bunch of clothes together. Um, but this is not like the smaller amount of setup involved in this, the more likely it is that we're going to do it. Also, the lower the chance of a necessary trip to the emergency room the higher the chance. Yeah, so we'll like do it. the extreme hot peppers are probably. <laughs> yeah, probably like I was, I was kind of all on board for that, but people keep sending in like stories about how they ate a ghost pepper and like how to develop a stomach ulcer. Like you know those charts where it's like the heat, the Scoville heat index. Where up here it's like Carolina Reaper, down here it's like a bell pepper, right? And just various gradations of all the peppers. I'll eat some bells. Somebody needs to draw like a dotted line where stomach ulcer is, right? I'll eat <laughs> anything below the dotted line. Anything above the dotted line, I'm out. We're like, out yeah. I'm not. I'm not developing a chronic stomach ulcer for a giggle on the PFF NFL podcast. I look. Can I want get... the podcast to be successful and to make you know our millions and millions of listeners happening to make the company money. Not to the point where I'm going to develop a stomach ulcer over it. If you want to make the listeners happy, you're supposed to 
tell them what's coming up on the show or I, I set you up to I know. tell them what yeah, was yeah. happening and you well, just, we had housekeeping I send us emails was the option if you want to host you can host but can we just go ahead I'm just saying what's on the show today send us emails that's what I was yes, send an, NFL podcast to pff.com right. on the show today we have a listener that sent in a very well crafted thought thought exercise I guess are the Detroit Lions and therefore Dan Campbell actually secret geniuses so that'll be interesting to, to read through and answer. And then after that, it's the PFF Hall of Fame. Now, that's not the corporate one that we have for like people in the company that you What's, and I are apparently members of. When somebody said you should have a PFF Hall of Fame, yeah. I saw the, t- the opening sentence. I was right. like, oh, we already do. Yeah, there you go. Then. No. We already do. No. So this is like if PFF was in charge of our own Hall of Fame for NFL players that played during the PFF era, um, who would make it? So we'll get into that later, and we've got some rules involved because, you know, rules make the world go around, Steve. So let's let's get into it. All right, so let's start with this Lions question. Yes. Fun. Okay, wait, but wait, wait, wait. I do have one thing before you get into it. Mm-hmm. Our college football preview magazine is incredible. Yeah. And I think they just need proper Credit. attribution. Credit for it. 600-plus pages. It is a part, because we've had a lot of questions about this. It is a part. We have two different subscriptions here. You can get a, any PFF college subscription or your pff edge subscription it is all there um it's really just 7.99 with the with the college subscription but it is a part of your edge um it is awesome and you know i i've mentioned before i like my phil Steele. i like having the the hard copy but you're getting a lot of stuff in the pff college magazine you just don't get from the uh, traditional phil Steele magazine which i love big fan of phil Steele. but this is a fraction of the price of your phil Steele magazine and uh incredible information that guys did Awesome work, and every team got some love in there. You're just crapping all over Phil Steele the last couple of episodes. No, I'm a big fan of Phil. I was I was talking to a neighbor the other day, and one of the weirdnesses about America is that you guys, when it comes to advertising, there's no like rules about how you can't like crap on your your competitor, right? So ads over here, it's like it's there's an ad rules for, about that. Yeah, everywhere else, there's ads for like Budweiser, right? But the ad about Budweiser is usually spent telling you how Michelob or Miller sucks, right? Whereas Michelob. everywhere else. Whatever, Michelob? Yeah. Okay. Sucks. Whereas everywhere else, the ad would be focused on the product you're actually selling, not the competitor for whom you want to All I down. said was, I love my Phil you're Steele magazine. You can, you can tell that you're, you know, you've been brought up in this American system of advertising. No, because so your, that was... Your promo, your ad is all about how this is way better than that Phil Steele thing that you may have had before. That's how wrestling used to work. Never, well, yeah. Never mentioned the competition yeah. until they broke that barrier, changed the whole thing. All right, let's get let's get into this here. Um, so the Dan Campbell is a genius. Do you want to read this? Okay. Read this uh, email, Michael this Yule. Good. Thank you. I assume it's Yule. There's no, like, acute on the E or Yule, anything. Yule, as in That's Yule Tide. Yule. Yes. Anyway. <clears throat> All right, let's get ready here. Hi, Sam and Steve. I've edited this, by the way, because there was a bit at the start about how, you know, I love the show, blah, blah. You're not supposed to read those things out. It makes you, makes you look a bit... You know, well, conceded. we're we're just scratching the surface of professionalism. Well, that's true. So a, it's not to... true. But B, also, you're not supposed to read out the bit about how great you are because it sounds conceited when you're even when you're reading it from somebody else. You so I, I've rules. cut it out. Um, as the title suggests, I think the Lions draft strategy may actually be one of the more underrated strategies in team building. You often note on the podcast that linemen, particularly O line, can take two to three years to develop to their full potential with skill positions on offense taking the least amount of time to develop and quarterbacks being somewhere in the middle and sometimes hitting the ground running like Justin Herbert. Uh, for receivers, you know, I think Justin Jefferson, etc. Therefore, if linemen take a few years to reach their full potential, are the Lions actually geniuses 
for building in the trenches first this year. Sewell, uh, Onwuzurike, McNeil, hypothetically attacking quarterback and the defensive secondary next year and rounding out with skill position heavy draft in year three. Of course, they wouldn't solely target those positions every year, but this that's where the emphasis would lie. Uh, therefore, in three years' time, the Lions could have an offense and defensive line that's fully come into its own, a quarterback that's starting to piece it all together, a defensive secondary that's had time to adjust to the NFL, and now offensive skill position talent that can be productive right away. Uh, additionally, this could give them flexibility with the cap, as generally, often cheaper positions, interior defensive line, are paid first, allowing them to front load any second contracts and save cap space for the, for the more expensive quarterback and skill position uh, to extend later down the road. Uh, this does, of course, assume that the Lions will have a decent hit rate on draft prospects, which, given the high number of value picks they have in the future, isn't completely unreasonable. Um, and they're competent with free agent signings, as well as having solid coaching staff that can develop talent, perhaps the biggest if in this whole situation. So my question to you both would be, do you view this as a valid team-building scenario, or are there too many external variables and scenarios that could completely derail this draft and team-building strategy? Thanks for reading this essay of an email, and keep up the good podcasting. I left that one in. Not by, you know, intent, just... You just had forgot. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. Glasgow's so, PFF number one fan. That's Glasgow, Graham? not Glasgow. Graham Glasgow? No, not Glasgow's, uh, Glasgow's. Glasgow. Wow. I thought it was Graham Glasgow's top fan. No. It's confusing. Anyway, I yeah, basic premise is building in the trenches if you're the Lions, smart move or not. That's the that's the email in a nutshell. Well, smart move or not to build in the trenches first because the time scale for development is different. So even if the numbers would say, hey, secondary receiving talent passing game, it's more important, are you actually better off starting off with the thing that takes the longest to develop? Yes, I, I think... Yes, I do. I think it's an, it's an astute question. And I do think that the Lions are positioned to have that long-term view because the new regime signed long-term contracts. Right. It, it is, they have contracts. the time to build it whatever way they want to build it. They're going to have two, three years, there, theoretically. There is done. a philosophy in the NFL, which is build, through the, through the, build in the trenches, right? And we we have tended to tried to not tried to debunk that our data has tended to debunk that which you know and it would say actually in today's nfl win on the perimeter win at wide receiver win at cornerback and all that stuff as long as the trenches aren't terrible so you don't win in the trenches you you have a decent foundation in the trenches but you really win on the perimeter you really win in the pass game so a a team trying to rebuild with you know a coach who's on a three and four year contract you might not say, hey, let's let's just attack the trenches right now. I, I really think this lion strategy makes sense because they can have this long-term view. Because they have signed a long-term deals, they gutted the roster. Uh, the roster was already somewhat gutted so anyway. And yeah, I think there's a lot to like here. And plus just, you know, trading Matthew Stafford for multiple first-round picks is also just beautiful team building that's what they should have done the variable i think is <clears throat> the secondary and cornerbacks because i think cornerback takes a similar amount of time usually to offense and defensive linemen in terms of when you're going to get the best player you know look at what happened to almost all of the rookies last season those guys just got torched so you know you expect them year two year three to be the, the years where you get the best play so um 
with the same strategy, you probably want to be drafting corners at the same time as your defensive and offensive linemen. Now, to be fair to Detroit, they kind of did that, right? They grabbed Melifonwu in this draft. Also, you can probably look at the guys they've had recently and say there is a salvage job to be done on the likes of Jeffrey Akuda in particular um, and say, okay, this wasn't our regime, but this is a guy who's a year away from being one of the best draft prospects at corner to come along in years. We like him. We think he can be part of this rebuilding prospect. And let's say he was a, let's add him to this draft. Let's see, he's a guy we're bringing in as a, a draft pick. Um, I think you can maybe look similarly on Oruwarie. I think he's another young player that has shown some talent and might be part of a better secondary in the future in a different scheme than he was uh, under the old one. So you can kind of look at it and say, well, they've, they've sort of done that already with, with the corners that they've had uh, brought in. Um, and then my second thing is, I'd be interested to know how conscious it is, right? Like if the strategy is we have an acute awareness of the different time scales involved in different position groups and how they take to transition to the NFL, then I'm all on board for saying this is a really smart way of doing it because that's, that's an intelligent way to be looking at this problem, whether or not it works out, right? I applaud the process at that point. If it's just... NFL in the 1980s says you build from the trenches and that's what we're doing because we're Dan Campbell and we oh, just can't bite. I'm just, can't give Dan Campbell and the, and the crew any credit. I'm making no judgment one way or the other. I'm saying that these are two different alternatives. Yeah. One, that they have this sophisticated understanding of different variables attached here and they've elected to go in this direction. I would say whether or not it works out, that is smart process. If it's the other way, which is just hey, you build a football team from the trenches, Arr, then no, that's Arr. not smart process. You know what I mean? Arr. That fits with all the other stuff that's just old school meatheadness and that's just not a smart way of doing anything. So I guess depend. I would like to know which of those is the truth because I think one of them is, one of them is a lot closer to genius than the other, put it that way. I think if you're looking, so the, the the thing I'll be interested to see, just just to be clear, like let's reset where the Lions roster is right now. From an offensive line perspective, probably a top 10 caliber unit. Like they've got top five potential dependent on how quickly first round pick Panay Sewell does actually hit the ground running. Taylor Decker at left tackle is, is very good. Panay Sewell is going to play right tackle. Uh, Jonah Jackson was a rookie last year, was, was a little up and down. Frank Ragnow just signed the biggest deal in history for a center, right? So mm -hmm. he's uh, a top three caliber center from what we've seen the last year, year and a half. So that's a bunch of really good spots. And then uh, Big V, Vitae, who's a better guard than a tackle, will kick into guard. I think on paper it looks like, hey, guard might be a question mark there, but the offensive line across the board is looking pretty solid. But Jonah Jackson would be a good case study for how this works, right? We really liked yes. him as a prospect coming out, didn't have a good rookie year. If he takes a big step forward in year two and an even bigger one in year three, that's the reasoning behind this, right? It's like right now, left guard looks like a, a major question mark, but there's reasons to think that Jonah Jackson might, might answer that question. It'll just take him two or three years. And then when you look at the receiving core, just the pass game in general, Jared Goff, no matter where Jared Goff was from a production standpoint, I think you'd always say he's a mid-tier quarterback. He's in that range. He's QB 14 to 23. Like he's somewhere in that range in any given season, right? And sometimes you, you know, get a little bit above that. Jared Goff throwing to Brashad Perryman and Tyrell Williams, Geronimo Allison, Quintez Cephas. I mean, that's not the greatest group of pass catchers. TJ Hawkinson's a good solid tight end, but um, 
I I think yeah, that's the, that's the position next offseason and beyond in the draft, free agency, whatever it is, they're going to have to, you know, attack is is the perimeter there. Um defense, you mentioned some of the the pieces that they have there. But I I think what the what you'd be looking at is potentially like a good case scenario is them becoming the Colts in a couple of years, right? Which is the, the Colts and Chris Ballard came in and reshaped that entire roster. They've had one of the best offensive lines over the last couple of years. They've had to figure out quarterback in part because of it, you know, because of Andrew Luck's retirement and, you know, stitching it together with the Phillip Rivers now investing in Carson Wentz. But I think you'll have a similar proxy for where the Lions might want to go. Are they going to be sitting here with this very good offensive line in a couple of years? And the thing I've been critical of the Colts of is the perimeter, is is the receivers. They've done a good job schematically protect protecting their corners defensively who aren't great on paper. But I think the thing that's holding the Colts back is that receiver position, right? So I think there needs to be a point in this Lions team building strategy where it's like, okay, we've done trenches are looking good. We got to go all in and try to get three and four deep at, at receiver and pass catcher because that's how you win in today's NFL. The other question would be, um, you know, like what are the ramifications for your team overall in terms of um, being – good at one spot at the expense of being abysmal at another versus taking a bit of a scattergun approach and trying to get incrementally better across the board. Like Detroit loaded up on the trenches and grabbed Melifon with a corner, um, added virtually nothing to the pass game. So consequently, you've got an offensive line that should be pretty good. But now you've got Jared Goff throwing to Perriman, Tyrell Williams, Geronimo Allison, Quint Quintez Cephas, Amonris and Brown. Like, it's bad, right? In theory, like, on paper, that could be a catastrophically anemic passing attack. Now, would you have been better to say we will, um, instead of one of these big-body defensive linemen or, you know, an off, like Jamar Chase, right? We'll deal with, we'll grab an offensive tackle next year, but we'll grab Jamar Chase, you know, whatever. Like, that kind of thing. Um, I know he was drafted by the Bengals. but He that, was gone, but that, yeah, hypothetically. That kind of decision-making, right? Go for a star receiver early, uh, get one less big body on the offense or the defensive line, you know, grab that guy next year, and therefore we might have something in the pass game to tread water this year while we improve across the board. I just, I'm not sure, are there like, are there consequences to that to essentially deliberately be as bad as they look like they're going to be from a pass game standpoint while they build everything else? Well, the thing I'm trying to the reason why I brought up the Colts is I'm trying to envision what the Lions are going to look like this year, which is how many teams recently have had that quote-unquote top 10 offensive line, which I think the Lions are capable of, but haven't had a great pass game or haven't had great pass catchers and have been a really one-sided team, right? So the, the reason why you would say you don't, you can't just win in the trenches is because you have teams like every every Carson Wentz Eagles team Besides the 2017 team, I've said this a million times on this podcast, right? They've always had a good offensive line. They've had one or two years with a good group of actual pass catchers for Carson Wentz. Uh, early Raiders have all with Derek Carr had a really good offensive line, and but until they had Amari Cooper and a couple other you know complementary threats, they they weren't moving the ball offensively. Derek Carr had a really good offensive line as a rookie, and they were not good. Um, there's a there was one other example I had off the top of my head, but there are other examples of teams that have re, just a really good solid offensive line, but not necessarily the 
the pass catchers to do anything. So ultimately, though, it does come down to the Lions. What do they do at quarterback, right? So that's the other comparison I make here is when Kyle Shanahan, John Lynch took over in San Francisco, six-year contracts for those guys. And I remember thinking at the time, they have the time to build this roster, to build this foundation before they figure out quarterback. And they waited about, they waited half a season. They passed on Mitchell Trubisky, Deshaun Watson, and Patrick Mahomes, for whatever that's worth. And then waited half a season, traded for Jimmy Garoppolo, and that was their investment. That was their guy as they, you know, added some some other pieces. But that, it felt like they had time before they had to, like, really attack the quarterback position, which the Lions also do. It's a little bit like that idea that you bring up every now and again, which is you don't you don't want to breed like a losing culture right because mm. it's hard to shake out of even once you get the talent in place that you should be better than that so does skewing all the way to the trenches do that by proxy because now you have no passing game and you can't win in today's nfl with no passing game plus you've essentially thrown a quarterback out there as like a genuine sacrificial lamb for the season it's like, all right, we have a quarterback. Yeah, he's Jared Goff, and he's going to get murdered because he's got nobody to throw to, but he's there. And then next year, we'll find a real quarterback. And we'll move. Like, it just, I don't know. It feels like you can definitely paint the picture that it's a smart way of building things in abstract terms, but there are, it feels, negative sides to going out there with basically the worst passing game in the NFL on paper. There is potential. I mean, there is potential with all those guys too. So this is this is the Jets receiving core last year this time because Brashad Perryman's there. Yeah. But we've seen flashes from Brashad Perryman when healthy. Tyrell Williams hasn't played a lot of football since 2018, but 15 plus yards per reception guy when he's on the field. We're talking about guys. Perryman and Tyrell Williams are both good number threes, which makes them okay if you give them a lot of volume as number two receivers you know, maybe they're okay. <laughs> that's 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 just where they are. And right. then, you know, Hawkinson at tight end and trying to talk myself into it. Yeah, good luck with that. I'm not, no, it's not going to go well. I think the biggest thing, what we're going to see this year is a, more information on Jared Goff. What is it? Like, is it? Because you're the guy has no shot. How, no, what because information if he does, is it? because if he elevates this unit. Yeah, if, if he achieves the impossible it says something about him that's different to what we think now. If every other scenario golf, comes out, but it out, could be. Though. So let's just say, what's the? This is similar. This is a similar supporting cast to say Sam Darnold's Jets. It's a better offensive line, no doubt. But if Jared Goff goes out there and he puts up Sam Darnold production, I think you learn stuff about Sam Darnold. You learn stuff about I don't think you, other other the whole point players about, in that potential middle tier of quarterbacks. No, the whole point about Darnold right now is that he's this perpetual question mark because the guys that love him will say it's all the Jets he got Adam Gase he never had a shot now the Panthers can trade all these picks and now we'll really see Sam Darnold right you never learn anything about the player as long as he's in that scenario so the only way that Jared Goff can show anything different or give you more information on Jared Goff is if he comes out here and suddenly looks like Joe Montana despite no receivers to throw to. And you're like, okay, Goff is actually better than we gave him credit for. This is amazing. Look what's around him. He's turning these guys into, into stars for the Lions. If Goff goes out and does anything else, it, show, it, it taught us nothing because you're like, well, he's got nobody to throw to. What did we expect to happen? No, because Nobody think would if, look bit different in this. If Goff, if, if this year Goff and Darnold switch spots in like the QB hierarchy, whatever, right? If you're ranking quarterbacks right now, say Goff is 20, Darnold's like 29, 30, 32, whatever it is. 
if they somehow switch and Goff looks like rookie year Goff or he looks like Sam Darnold of the last couple of years and Darnold because he's got a Joe Brady in Carolina and he's got some really good pass catchers and yeah the offensive line's got some issues but Darnold all of a sudden looks like 2017 Jared Goff that was his second year that was McVay's first year and all of a sudden we we're like wow look at this Sean McVay works magic with Jared Goff if Darnold does that this year I think it just furthers this point of like the the middle tier quarterback your success is only dependent or not only but it's just so dependent on coach receivers right, but it, and environment it teaches you nothing about jared goff like goff can rank anywhere from like 18 to 40 this year in terms of quarterbacks I, I think it would and you say learn nothing about just a pr- then you would you would further the narrative that he is a sean mcveigh product that's all people think anyway that's why they like salary dumped him to get him off the roster like, but if goff puts up the same production this year as he did with the rams you would say okay that's that's jared goff that's who he is and he did it in a lesser situation in detroit that would that would be telling i'm not sure what we're learning about jared like all the data that we can get from jared goff this year seems irrelevant i just love all this a b analysis we got stafford going to make you know to play with mcveigh we have goff going to what you know on paper a poor situation we have darnold going to a better situation some of that some of that movement i know quarterback movement is is cool tom brady going to tampa bay like you learn more about these guys when you get them into different situations so ultimately, I think it's a pretty good strategy by the Lions. I wouldn't say it's closet genius. I would say it's a good team building strategy given where the roster is and where they're just, looking to go. I just want to know if it's deliberate. Can we get we got Detroit beat writers to listen to us? Somebody asked. Can we get Campbell, Mark Brunel on the horn? Somebody asked the Lions decision oh, makers if this was a conscious team building strategy based off I information. Will, I will find out. Or if they just decided that smart teams win in the trenches because that's what we do here i can find Toughness. out but i probably can't reveal my source well that's oh well, i don't care if you reveal your sources i just want to know the information i want somebody on the lion's beat to ask the lions whether this was conscious or not i'll send some messages okay pff has partnered with symbol that's s-i-m-b-u-l-l the stock market for sports that allows you to trade sports teams like stocks and earn cash payouts when your teams win symbol has blended sports and the stock market to offer you a new way to invest in and profit off your favorite teams and the lions the mlb is in full swing for the rest of the summer allowing you to earn daily cash payouts and of course the nfl that's what you're listening to this is where you want to invest so keep an eye on all of the information during training camp to see your team's stock rise use promo code pff and deposit ten dollars at symbol.app slash pff to earn a free pff annual subscription it's promo code pff with a ten dollar deposit at symbol.app slash pff to earn a free annual subscription all right you want to get into this second part here sam sure the pff hall of fame again not not the internal one not the one where you have a green jacket i don't have a jacket well i have no jacket i'm in uh you're jacket man i am in charge of finding some pff green jackets wow for us we this is not something we should we should not be talking on air here this is this is is internal business only yeah thank god but i'm by the way if good companies do companies do they they you you have to find ways to acknowledge your uh, your best employees it's not written into a contract (laughs) anywhere but there's no way i'm ever appearing in public anywhere with one of these jackets on like there's no photo that's going to circulate oh really never happening when we have that bet where we have to like make somebody you know make each other wear something i'm gonna make you wear your not doing it pff hall of fame not happening you gotta be proud of it like the you know the gold jackets you see running around the super bowl can be proud of what you've earned yeah 
you, know, you turned a startup into a I don't think those are comparable man. things. NFL Hall of Famer, PFF Hall of Famer. I don't think those are comparable levels of uh, wear your jacket with pride out it's, in the streets. It's similar. Ten years of hard work. Also, they only do something. that like they only do that like at the Super Bowl. You know, when they have to go and like football conferences, essentially. Oh, right? I doubt it. You find like I will wear no. I you think Barry Sanders wearing his gold jacket to like he's not wearing it to, like Jones. Target. Down the street, he's just going to Whole Foods him. with his no, he's not gold jacket. Absolutely on. not happening. They all, some of them are. No, none of them like are. Andre That's the thing. Reed, Andre Reed would wear it. They're anywhere. only wearing it to like you know public <laughs> football events, like the Super Bowl ring. Like they sit in the, they sit it, it, like in the in the safe until they need to present a show on TV or whatever, and then the Super Bowl ring comes out. And it's like yeah, look, I'm champion. All right, let's get to this PFF Hall of Fame. Uh, get to the. Damian Bradbury gave the uh, the suggestion or question, what would a PFF Hall of Fame look like? And so PFF data goes back to 2006. Yep. The requirements we're looking at here is not just guys that are going to the Hall of Fame, not Tom Brady or Drew Brees or Peyton Manning or anything like that, but people whose career started during the PFF era. And this is not about are they going to the NFL Hall of Fame. Well, not only that, but I think we should – I think we should strip out those players, right? Because there's a bunch of players that are obviously going to the Hall of Fame that were drafted during the PFF era and that we have their whole career. You know, Joe Thomas is going to walk in there as a first ballot Hall of Famer. Megatron is the PFF. Like, there's a bunch of those guys, Adrian Peterson, that were drafted during the PFF era that are obviously going to go to the Hall. And frankly, it's not a good discussion to be like, hey, PFF also thinks Joe Thomas was a really good player. I'm more interested in the guys that may not, probably won't, make the Hall of Fame, but you could make a good case that they should, for whom PFF has their entire career. And they, it got me thinking, we were talking to Andrew Whitworth on the last show, well, I was, you were somewhere else, um, that Andrew Whitworth is one of those guys where we have his entire career, 15,000 snaps of playing time, and what Whitworth probably should be a pretty clear Hall of Famer. Well, let's, um, let's just set that criteria real quick before you transition to the actual names. Hmm. So we're going to say, so it's so it's people, so Vaughn Miller, J.J. Watt, we're saying, Aaron Donald, we're saying, let's forget those guys. Yeah, for any shoe-in for the actual Hall of Fame is not really up for discussion here. Who are the guys that we highlighted during this era? Did you put uh, Justin Smith on here? No, because we don't have his whole career. So We missed rule 05? number one. When was he drafted? 04, 05? Something like that, yeah. Don't you missed Eric Weddle on your list I did. here. I wrote it at the bottom. It's okay. So we'll go through. So start guys who entered the league in 2006 or later. No, you're way off. Justin Smith was drafted in the uh, fourth 01. overall in 2001. 01. That's so right. we're way off. Sorry. Um, anyway, yeah. One, rule number one 100% of his career must be captured by the PFF system. So no Tom Brady, for example, or Justin Smith. Guys who predated us. 2006 onward. 2006 draft onward. Um, yeah, I'd said, look, stick to guys that are not going to be shoe-ins for the actual Hall of Fame. And then the last one is, let's also stick to guys that are either retired or, you know, about to be. Like Whitworth's, how long can he really go on? Look, the guy's 39 years how old. How are you It's got to come off at some point, right? You're going to call him out like that. I Look, he knows. Our friend of the show. He knows he's hanging on. Um, he also said, look, he, you got 15,000 snaps. It's a nice round number. You've either, to to, 20. you've either got to call it a day right there or go all the way to 20. 
Um, but anyway, let's, let's stick Whitworth the guys that are about done. Go listen to the Whit- Whitworth interview on the last show. It was really good. All right, so let's 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 go through it. PFF Hall of Fame, 2006 or later, not a shoe in for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Andrew Whitworth is your first nomination. Yeah, sure. I mean, he he actually didn't inspire the idea since somebody emailed it in. Well, maybe he did. Maybe the person you've been talking it. about this for a while though, but you've been more thinking like, could we help influence the Pro Football Hall of Fame for guys like Andrew Whitworth? Yes. Um, I mean, maybe the emailer wrote this in response to having listened to the Andrew Whitworth interview. So I can't actually claim that it wasn't inspired by this. But yeah, a guy like Whitworth, I think, is a perfect example where he has kind of been underrated for his entire career down to, you know, being drafted as a a guard slash tackle, not seen in the Joe Thomas kind of world as, hey, from day one, this guy is the perfect building block at left tackle. Whitworth had to earn it. He had to show people that he was capable of doing that. And then do it time after time after time and you know unlike joe thomas again where it's like everyone just assumed he would be good right up until he hung him up i think people have been waiting for whitworth to fall off right and to not be as good as he has been and to expect this is the beginning of the end and he just keeps on defying father time and defying convention across the board so i think whitworth is a perfect example of a guy who probably is at that hall of fame level and i've I don't know where his sort of overall Hall of Fame stock lies in the eyes of the people that vote for this kind of thing, but it feels like he's a significant distance from like a guy like Joe Thomas. And in terms of like PFF grade and data and all those kinds of things throughout their careers, he really isn't and shouldn't be. Somewhat similar. Yeah, they're in in the same range at least. Yeah, offensive line has always been one of those positions where it is they haven't had numbers right You've right and a lot start. of these guys are our offensive linemen like as much as i think we've done a good job in uh, in terms of furthering the debate on this kind of stuff i think the areas where we can still like highlight guys that have been career underrated is is offensive line so marshall yonda is another guy that we've brought up a lot what, what i was going to say though as far as like hall of fame credentials go offensive line is is usually just based off of perception and feel or this guy crushed people this guy entered the league and was a pro bowler i mean it's it's very much a you know like word of mouth type of thing right yeah i mean that's where it always was yeah and joe so joe thomas has always been and by the way up there if like joe thomas and andrew whitworth i think their their careers their peaks were very similar but even even if there was more of a gap than there has been at some point, longevity is a factor. I, it gets very difficult because I don't like longevity as, I don't like, long, like if you're average for a really long period of time, in my opinion, there's no length of time you can be average that transforms you into something different. You know, like Frank Gore, right? Let's be honest, it's Frank Gore. There's, Frank Gore could play for 47 years and it wouldn't trend, it wouldn't change like how average he's been for those 47 years. See, Just I, because he'd hung on for that, it doesn't turn that into something different. I used to think a little differently though. Like when you, like Kurt Warner was a guy whose peaks were absolutely incredible, yes. right? And from 99 to 01, best quarterback in the NFL. Like right. there wasn't a peer. But how long would, so Andy Dalton couldn't play for a period of time that would transform Andy Dalton into a better quarterback than he has no been. but i think for i think there's something to like andy dalton's not a good example because yeah it's a perfect no, example there's no time where he looked like a hall of fame exactly my point in a nutshell but i think the other way though a guy like kurt warner who played like a hall of famer essentially between 90 between 01 between 99 and 01 and then again between like 
08 and 09. Yeah. Like, those were the two times when he played like a Hall of Famer. If Kurt Warner had three or four more just normal seasons in there, to me, that feels better. You know, like, it feels like, oh, here's, like, this extended career no. where you're just saying, oh, he only had these five-year – To me – These like five the, years of peaking. The peaks are a qualification. I actually think almost the opposite, that if you saw five years of average play from a guy like that, it hurts their case more than it helps it. Like, I've always made the argument that – This is the Eli case here. No, it's actually like a a Randy Moss, Torrey Holt, J.J. Watt kind of case, right? Like, if if Torrey Holt quit the league after seven years, Torrey Holt would walk into the Hall of Fame. He didn't. He hung around for a while, and the back end was not great. So now everyone looks at his career, and they're like, well, it was this great start, but then it falls off, and now you compare him to Isaac Bruce and Chris Carter and all those other guys, and it didn't end up as good because the back end wasn't as nice. Whereas I think if he just walked off out of the game after seven years, he'd have the best seven-year stretch of any player in NFL history, and he'd be like, that guy walks into the Hall of Fame. So my point with, so Kurt Warner, I think, just reaches the threshold. Like, peaks were amazing. He's a Hall of Fame player based off those alone, and we're done. My point, though, with Andy Dalton is that we always make that point, the Dalton line. If you're above the Dalton line, you're a pretty good quarterback. If you're not, you're looking for somebody else. Dalton could play, he's basically the definition of a bang average NFL quarterback. There's no length of time that he could play that would transform that rank average status into something just, different but he's a because bad, of longevity. Nobody is, he, he, no, there's, Andy Dalton's a bad example. Matthew Stafford. It's a perfect example. Matthew Stafford is a better example. You take a guy who is good. Andy Dalton, you use the word average. In the grand scheme of the world, Andy Dalton's good. In the, scheme, in the grand scheme of the NFL, he's average, right? Matthew Stafford, for the majority of his career, has been good, and top. He's he's probably the he's QB eleven to fifteen okay, of his era. Fine, use so Matthew Stafford. Matthew There's no Stafford length of time that Stafford could play that turns good into great. And there are enough. There are enough. There's the handful of you know people on Twitter that would make that case. That's and why Stafford is four or five years away from Matthew Stafford having, and this is why the 17 game schedule, Sammy, that's why you don't, you shouldn't want the 17 game schedule because Matthew Stafford's going to have an extra, you know, 300, 400 passing yards every year now yeah. and all this stuff. He's going right? to have the paid Manning records. Yeah. By the end of it all. Yeah. Look, so Matthew Stafford, I Him don't and love, Matt Ryan. I don't love Stafford as an example because there are people that think he was better than he is anyway, which complicates it. But yes, there's no length of time that Matthew Stafford can play that turns his consistently pretty good play into something great. And that's my problem with with longevity as a thing generally with the Hall of Fame is that people use it as a people use it as a as a force that transforms play into something better than it ever was just cuz he did it for a long what, period of time. What if Matthew I just Stafford don't get that? It doesn't it's not it doesn't have a transformative effect, but what I think it can do is have like a tie-breaking effect or maybe a boost to something that was already really good. So my point was going to be, look, Whitworth and Joe Thomas are actually really close in terms of peak, in terms of overall play for an extended period of time. But Joe Thomas called it a career after 10,821 snaps. Whitworth is at 15,000 and counting. There has to be something to that. That's yes, like another 4,000 snaps. There's something to being good for a longer Very period good. of time. Right. Good. We're already let's Hall of Fame caliber. For, but just for PFF terms, let's say 80s, grading in the 80s for an extra five, six, seven years means something. Grading average, 
high 60s, 70s, whatever, that you're saying that doesn't mean anything. I think because Frank Gore is a different example than Andy Dalton. There was a point, there was never a point where Frank Gore was like the best running back in the league, but never. he but he was in the top five conversation for like a year and a half. For a lot of his career, I think he was probably in that top five conversation. No, look at his, like, no. <laughs> he really hasn't been. I'm not going to defend Frank um, Moore's Hall of Fame I credentials on here. No way. Longevity can be a reason that it's like a, it, it should separate players that were already qualifying for the Hall of Fame, right? Like, guys that are, like, their, their career in isolation before you even factor in playing time, you're like, yeah, that guy was a Hall of Fame player. And then it's like, all right, but this guy did it for twice as long. That should mean something. But it shouldn't be like, well, this guy did it for twice as long, but was half the player that the other dude was. But he did it for twice as long, so that that equals the same thing. What no. if get the hell out of here? That's ridiculous. What if Matthew Stafford has a two-year? Because again, our perspective on Eli Manning is he had two peak seasons, and they weren't necessarily the two Super Bowl years. He had two Super Bowl runs. One of them was his a peak season, twenty eleven and twelve. Eli played like a top five caliber quarterback. What if Matthew Stafford has two of those here at the tail end of his career? That would, so to this point, he has not been a Hall of Famer. Can you, in a two-year peak, and maybe the Rams go to a Super Bowl and the whole thing, or maybe they win one, is that enough to turn Matthew Stafford, who right now we're like, there's no way he's a Hall of Famer. There's no point in his career where he has looked like a Hall of Famer, except you know, three times a year he kind of does, but he's never been a Hall of Famer, and then he has a two-, three-year peak right now does that make him a Hall of Famer? I think that, well, put it this way, that would have a much stronger effect on his Hall of Fame case than 15 more years of good play. 15 more years? He'd be like 30 years old at that point, Matthew <laughs> like Stafford. Stafford. Never ages. If Stafford has 15 more years grading at 75, I don't care. If Matthew Stafford has a three-game run where he looks like the best quarter, or three-season run, rather, where he looks like the best quarterback in the NFL, absolutely that moves the needle more than that. Now, quarterback is more complicated because it's the most important position in the NFL. I could be convinced that Eli Manning has a Hall of Fame case based essentially off the back of a 10-game stretch that culminated in two Super Bowl wins, right? I, I, I am sympathetic to that argument. I'm not yeah. necessarily sure that I buy into it, but I will, I will at least entertain that case, and I'm not writing it off from the outset. So quarterback gets messy, but just generally – you need to have been that caliber of player for a while at some point. And some some guys that get touted as a Hall of Famer have never been. All right, let's go through some of the other offensive linemen on this list. Uh, you've got Nick Mangold down here? Yeah, I, I don't... It's been a while now since Nick Mangold retired, and he retired kind of young. So I wonder if generally the perception is kind of souring on how good he was. But Nick Mangold was the best center in the NFL for his career. He basically. was the guy. Yeah, he was... For he his a, career, he was basically the best center in the NFL for the entirety of it. He had 11,000 snaps. Yeah, but it, and drafted it feels in like the longer things go, you know, the more people have kind of forgotten about Nick Mangold. Well, that's why we're here. Sure. To remind I don't people. know. Maybe a lot of this is always like, I don't quite know where they're like, maybe Nick Mangold is an absolute shoe in for the real Hall of Fame. And it's ridiculous even bringing his name up, but just threw it out there. Nick Mangold's a good one. Uh, Marshall Yonda is the one that we cite all the time. And again, I don't know what the perception is yeah, realistically. And I think Yonda's perception probably did rise to meet where we've had him like basically through the entire one. The one that's more interesting to me is Josh Sitton because I'm pretty sure his didn't. And Sitton was the best pass blocking guard in the NFL for basically his entire career. Like he was the guy 
that first started to put out numbers where you're like, this is a glitch. Like this isn't these are not normal numbers for an interior offensive lineman. He would be the guy that had like single digit pressures over a season. You know, most often most guards it's like Rodney Hudson. Yeah. yeah might but, be another name here. But even Hudson at center, it's it's easier to put up single digit pressure numbers sure. at center. Now his were so single digit that it ends up in the same ballpark. But most guards are giving up 20 total pressures in a season. Sitton was giving up single digits multiple times in his career and was just never allowing pressure on the quarterback consistently. He was the gold standard. for While Joe Thomas was the gold standard at pass blocking for left tackle, Sitton became that a guard. And I don't think he ever got the credit that he deserved for that. The trouble there, I mean, with the real Hall of Fame is like, okay, who was the best pass protecting guard in the 90s, in the 80s, in the, you know, in whenever? Yeah, nobody knows. Nobody knows. And so there's no there's no way to kind of compare that. Uh, going back to Yonda really quick. Yonda, two seasons above 90 in PFF grading. Never graded below 82, 81, 81.7, essentially. Never grade his entire page from 2007 to 19 is all green or blue yeah i remember some of that was playing right tackle that's my favorite part about yonda he as a rookie tackle was in joe thomas range as far as rookie grade i mean he came in and played right tackle before kicking into guard yeah he is one of the great what if stories in terms of like if the ravens had just kept yonda right tackle what would his career have looked like because you could be talking about you know, the best right tackle of the last 20 years. Like, so Quentin Nelson's grades are trending higher than this. Like, his the beginning of his career. But this is Quentin Nelson type of stuff where Nelson has, I think, has the hype. Again, it's tough to perceive this. But Quentin Nelson definitely has the hype. Whereas Yonda, I don't know, he was just the guy who's doing it and he's solid and whatever every single year and, uh, and grading really well. Um, so Nick Mangold... Marshall Yonda, you got Joe Staley written down here as well. Another yeah. good solid tackle. Staley might be a step below those guys, but his career leveled out to being like there's something to being consistently the top of the next tier down for your entire career. Now, look, I have a fairly harsh, strict interpretation of what a Hall of Fame should be. And for me, like if that's your peak, you probably don't qualify. But that's not where the real Hall of Fame is. And if you spent your entire career as essentially the top of the second tier of your position, so at no point were you ever Joe Thomas, but you were always like the next guy, I think there's something to that. And that was where Joe Staley, you know, made his career was being just this incredibly solid, very good. Um, you know, our friends at the uh, the athletic football show, Robert Mays and uh, Nate Tice, they did a show of the Hall of the Very Good you know, oh, they the, did a whole show on that? Right. The place where Frank Gore actually belongs, that kind of thing. Um, Joe you, Staley, You wouldn't even I debate that. You might not even put him in the very good. You'd put him in the hall true, of good. Yeah. <laughs> hall of... Hall of pretty good. Yeah. Hall of above Hall of admirable. average. Hall of admirable. Um, so the hall of average is Thomas Jones. Yes. There's somewhere between the hall of average and the hall of very good. The hall of where Frank Gore. Yeah, the hall Gore of admirable. I would say so, high mediocrity. No, it's bad. Like, here's the thing. There's a place for guys like that, and it's NFL. There's not, actually. No, there's not. Not the there's mediocrity, not, not the high mediocrity thing. There's a place for guys like that, and it's team ring of honors, right? Rings of honor. Yeah. Um, where it's like, you had a great career. You had a fantastic career. You've hung on so incredibly long that it's blowing people's minds. What if they bounce around, It's though? a phenomenal career. You belong in somebody's ring of honor. You don't belong in the Hall of Fame because you were never actually that good. 
that good, that good, the Hall of Fame good. It's a really high bar to hit, and you didn't hit it. And it doesn't matter because you had a great career anyway. Congratulations to you. Here's your, you know, whatever it is, your alumni pennant. Now, bye-bye. You, you can come back in a couple of years, and the 49ers will put you into their ring of honor. Great place to be. You're not a Hall of Famer. I just think there's, we should embrace that more. You know, not everybody has to be a Hall of Famer. It's tough to do. You know that, Steve. You're a, Hall, you're a two-time Hall of Famer. Two-time Hall of Famer. It's a here. really tough gig to get into the, whatever it is, East Massachusetts Hall of Fame. UMass Lowell there you go. Hall of Fame. I'm okay. still, if you're in the UML athletic department, like, do some research here. <laughs> you should probably be in that Hall of Fame, too. You're not in that one. Which one are you in? I'm not in the UMass Lowell What one. are you? You're in the PFF Hall of Fame. I'm in the North Reading Hall of Fame. North Reading High School Hall of Fame. Okay. And uh, obviously. Of course. Uh, yeah, I was right. all, st- all state in basketball. So I'm, I'm just all, saying. I was conference. I was it's not good. easy to make a Hall of Fame. It's not. So UMass Lowell, like, figure it out, guys. I don't donate enough money to the That's school, problem, yeah. obviously. But um, should probably be in the Hall of Fame for my exploits. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, College World Series, Division Two, but you know, College World Series. Maybe it was the, it might have been the bacon, egg, and cheese, <laughs> actually, that disqualified me. There's like a sign now, on the office somewhere saying, "Look, this guy never makes it in because of this black of mark bacon, egg, on, on our record." Here, as I got, um, you know, free breakfast sandwich on the way to the World we Series. We can't, we can't draw attention to the violations of the past by putting you in the Hall of Fame. I think the statue of limitations would. Uh, it's a statute. I know. I know. Yeah. But look, when you throw 125 pitches, come back on two days rest and throw another 100 hmm. in relief, six and a third to get us to the World Series, I think that that merits something. I mean, you know I'm, I mean? I'm not the person you need to convince. On two days rest, Sam, I put my career on the line Yeah, for the Riverhawks. Maybe that cost you your, your shot at the majors. Uh, yeah, my velocity was way down the next year. <laughs> I was hurt. My draft year was, uh, was not great. A little disappointing, my yeah. draft year. Which one? My junior year. That was okay. like, the, that's like when you can make some money. That was a big one. Like high school, I never really had a chance. Right. But my junior year, like I was going to get drafted. Yeah. Until I didn't. Until, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> until I was, you know, I was more like, I was throwing high 80s instead. You were going to make bank right up until nobody was interested. Yeah. Yeah. So put that career on the line so the Riverhawks could go to the World Series. You know what I mean? And do they appreciate it? No. No, no they don't. We're right sitting here slightly. 20 years later. Nothing. Nothing. Huh. Where are you guys? That's Where are you guys? Story. Come on. Anyway, let's get this is this is it's it's July. That's why we can have some fun. Uh Dwayne Brown, another name you put down here. Just the, yeah, the Hall of the Solid. Right. Similar we need a solid, solid better hall. than that, He's right? Good. Similar story to Joe Staley. Became this top tier of the next group down. You know, went to Seattle, transformed that offensive line, granted from like catastrophic to just not great, but made a real material impact and an obvious one right off the bat. Dwayne Brown has become one of the best tackles of his generation. Again, probably like not in the Whitworth, Joe Thomas, Marshall Yanda area, but right behind them. Three centers to mention here, too. I'll add Alex Mack in here. Alex Mack, Rodney Hudson, Jason Kelsey. They've pretty much been the standard at center at various points in the last 10 to 12 years, I'd say. Um, Kelsey, awesome, undersized, mediocre hockey player, but undersized center who's just awesome zone run, uh, run score of one of the most hysterical goals that's ever been scored i mean he's a natural goal scorer 
Natural, yeah. Natural goal scorer. Just things happen. Go listen to that. When was that last last show? Two shows ago? Uh, at least two, maybe. Three. Listen to all of our shows. You'll yeah, hear the, the story on Jason Kelsey. Uh, Rodney Hudson, the guy that we've highlighted, he's the Josh Sitton of you know pass-protecting centers. Yeah, uh, I mean, his numbers are stupid. Right. So, again, it's just compared to your peers, Rodney Hudson in a different world as far as pass pro goes. And then Alex Mack has kind of been just like a little bit of both. Again, zone block. He's been in the Shanahan scheme. He's been in a system that plays to his strengths really well, but Alex Mack has been uh, the standard zone-blocking center. Him and Jason Kelsey, I don't want to say the standard. They're both up there as far as run-blocking centers go during the PFF era. Yeah, um, I think there's a decent case for all those those guys, um, and that probably runs it out for offensive linemen. Quick break to tell you about our friends over at Underdog Fantasy. If you like fantasy football and you like playing fantasy for money, you need to check out Underdog Fantasy. Underdog's got everything, including season-long and playoff best ball. Best ball is a season-long game where you draft a team like you normally do, but that's it. There's no in-season roster management. Underdog automatically selects your best performers each week, saving you loads of time. Go to Underdog Fantasy and deposit 10 bucks using promo code PFF, and you get a free PFF Edge annual subscription. That's promo code PFF. Draft now at Underdog Fantasy. Does that mean you get... So you get the college football magazine for 10 bucks, plus everything else that comes with Edge. Sounds so, like a good deal. Yeah, promo code PFF over at Underdog Fantasy. All right, who else we got here? PFF Hall of Fame dating back to 2006. Not your slam dunk pro football Hall of Famers. I think there's a few defensive linemen that are interesting discussions. Kyle Williams, um, Meatball. Hey, one of the best nicknames ever. Uh, but Kyle Williams, you know, defensive tackle slash just general interior alignment once they moved around fronts for the Buffalo Bills for years was an incredibly good player. Again, a guy that never, like, never hit the Aaron Donald, J.J. Watt heights of, like, the best player in the NFL by a mile, but was always really, really good um, and a difference maker for the Bills inside. I think he has a legitimate, you know, PFF Hall of Fame case. Usually with those guys, you need to have – that one peak season at least from a sack total standpoint to like for like the league to be aware of how good you are and i think you know williams did have one one season where he had 13 sacks by our numbers back in 2013 but yeah he was he was a better player even before that right he was grading really well yeah. uh, disruptive in the run game pretty good pass rusher as i look back at his career though i think our memory of him might be a little bit more positive than even his actual grading. He had a lot of good solid years, but was never in that elite group for the majority. It wasn't in the elite group for the majority of his career. No, that's, that's what I said. But I think he is a player that fits that mold of being just consistently a really positive disruptor every single year. 69 pressure season back in 2013. Right. It's a lot back then. How about the couple, uh, couple safeties that I listed at the bottom here? Harrison Smith. You listed. I listed him, yeah. And I added Eric Weddle. Yeah. So Weddle kind of has a a Yonda-like story. I think I think it was 07 was his rookie season. He started out more as a slot corner. My favorite part of Eric Weddle is the versatility. As, as the NFL has leaned on versatile players more and more over the past decade plus, Eric Weddle is that guy, right? He could play free safety. He could play in the box. He played in the slot his rookie season. I mean, one, they're, everywhere. they're legitimate, like, natural successors. Like, Harrison Smith was the natural successor to Eric Weddle in terms of that that player. The, for their careers, the league had kind of split in half. You know, there was half the league playing that Legion of Boom style, single high, free safety, strong safety, camp chancellor role. And the other half 
was playing the more split safety looks, the two, four, six coverages um, where you need a safety that can do everything, can move around, can execute every assignment you want of them. That was Eric Weddle to start with. And then Harrison Smith took over as the, the prototype for that position. And obviously there was a, you know, a transition or a crossover period where they were both playing, but like they were the natural one then version two. Devin McCourty you have on this list as well. Yeah. That's safety. He was he entered the league at corner. Yeah. And in 2010. Had a couple of good years at corner. He was legit at corner. I mean, the the, the story of McCourty's career is when the Patriots is we always talk about the Patriots, they play man coverage like crazy. That didn't actually happen until about 2012 when they got Aqib Talib. Back when in 2009, 10, 11, the Patriots were playing a ton of zone coverage, and that's where McCourty was excellent. Uh, once they they tried to play a lot of man in 2011, McCourty got torched, eventually moved to safety once Tlaib showed up, and he became just one of the better free safeties in the league. And we always describe, you know, Earl Thomas is on this list as well. Earl Thomas makes those incredible plays where it's like, wow, look at these five plays Earl Thomas makes that nobody else can make. McCourty doesn't have a ton of those on his film, but he's the guy that just doesn't make a ton of mistakes, always graded well, sure, tackler, would make some plays on the ball, but just you don't see busted coverages yeah. when... Devin McCourty is back there playing free safety. And I think he's a big part of why that Patriots secondary was always kind of tied together and never was never other than like a five game stretch at the start of when Stephon Gilmore arrived. When seventeen, yeah. They were almost always tight in terms of never busting coverages and no breakdowns of communication. Right. I think McCourty's a big part of that. There was a hiccup when Gilmore rocked up and they were busting a coverage every week. Um, but other than that, They've always been extremely good at that, and I think I think a big part of that is McCourty. So you put Earl Thomas on this list. I did. I, I think, look, those peaks that you talked about in terms of Kurt, Kurt Warner, I think are one way to get yourself into the Hall of Fame. Just incredible, even if it's a short, a run where you were just the best guy in the NFL at your position. I think another way of getting in is – the, uh, the real Hall of Fame, people like to start talking about, um, you know, can you tell the, the story of football without X? And the answer to that is always yes. It just depends how long your story is, right? And like it's right. a stupid way of approaching this. But to me, I think there's something where if you were the reason behind like an entire schematic shift, that like you had an impact in the, in, on the game that goes beyond just your PFF grade or your tackle numbers or your interception numbers. Lawrence Taylor. Yes. And I will make, and or you know, Randy Moss when he rocked up, Bob Hayes when he, Bob Hayes is the reason that zone coverage was invented, right? Because the dude was maybe the fastest sprinter in the world, and started running go routes, and you're like, you know, people like me, like uh, I can't run with that guy, <laughs> or in fact, be within ten yards of him when the ball arrives. We're gonna have to do something other than man-to-man -man coverage. Um, like if you did that, if you're a reason things like that happened, that should put you in the Hall of Fame because that impact is difficult to measure and it's, it's, it resonates. Earl Thomas, I will maintain, is the reason that the Legion of Boom, the biggest reason that the Legion of Boom was so dominant because he, what he did allowed everything else to function. The fact that he could make plays on the ball from anywhere he lined up as that as the single high free safety from being able to play that role closer to the line of scrimmage than anybody else that's ever tried it like thomas's impact i think just resonates beyond his overall level of play in a way that none of the other safeties on this list 
can make that case. I think his, you're going back to like an Ed Reed to find the last guy that had that kind of impact. Yeah, I think with safety, if you look at the last era of football, however you want to define that, the last 15 plus years, Ed Reed, Troy Polamalu, that was the big debate. Yeah. Completely different players. That was the big debate but for same, a while. I think same concept in terms of both those guys, their impact resonated and what they did allowed their defense to function. And, and then Earl Thomas being that guy, right? Yeah. So the transition to, to Earl Thomas there. Um, what about Richard Sherman? Do you think he's just a slam dunk for the yeah. Pro Football Hall of Fame? I think he walks into the real Hall of Fame. A couple other names here. We've used Chris Harris quite a bit as like the poster boy, poster child, whatever you want to say, for PFF grades, highlighting underrated players who aren't just good, but actually among the best at their position. Yeah. Chris Harris, the third highest grade of the of the of the decade of the 2010s behind two surefire Hall of Famers, right? Darrell Revis and Richard Sherman. So, Chris Harris might be the most obvious one here where I don't think he's making the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but he's he's first ballot all PFF Hall of Fame here. I like the two corners together. I Chris Harris is a good addition and then I like Casey Hayward as well. I think those two guys massively underrated still now we i think we made a big deal or a big difference to their overall reputations and you know making them seen as better players than they would have been if they'd just been left to, to the hype machine working its magic but i think both guys are still underrated for their careers um you're right they're both up there in terms of overall grade for the decade casey hayward still had one of the best rookie seasons we've ever seen from a cornerback statistically and in terms of PFF grade back in 2012, right, with the Packers, where he was a slot corner, um, putting up absurd numbers, like Revis-like numbers in terms of um, in terms of passer rating against those kinds of things. So those guys, I think, have both been incredible players, and neither of them gets the kind of respect, even that a guy like you know Patrick Peterson has had throughout his career. Yeah, and both players, Hayward and Harris, to your point, have played in the slot, have played outside, and they generally haven't really seen a, a drop-off in performance when they've had to play different roles. And that, I think that was what impressed me most about both of them. Yeah. Like, there was a point where it's like, ah, oh, we've seen you do it in the slot. What are you? What's going to happen when you're outside? And both, you know, essentially stepped up and performed well. Rookie year for Casey Hayward. PFF coverage grade of 91.6. So that's already insane. Uh, 500 coverage snaps. This is including the playoffs. Um, had 76 targets thrown his way. 43.4% of those were caught. Now, this is in the slot where a lot of catches are essentially gimmies, right? A, a completion rate of 43 in the slot is ridiculous. Passer rating of 30.4 into his coverage. That's didn't, crazy. Didn't allow a touchdown all year long. Had six picks and 12 pass breakups and a passer rating of 30. The famous number, the passer rating of throwing the ball into the dirt every play is 39.6. So he's almost 10 points lower targeting Casey Hayward as a rookie from the slot than it is just dumping the ball into the ground every play. That, I, I there are the three greatest statistical seasons we've seen from a cornerback. That's one of them. Darrell Revis in 2009, the absurd greatest season we've seen. And then William Jackson the third, 2017, where he put up Revis-like numbers on a smaller sample size and not quite, you know. We need, we need to do a whole show on Revis 09. Right, people but, need to remember. But those are the three greatest stat seasons we've yeah. ever seen from a corner, and Casey Hayward did it as a rookie. Oh, you already wrote Geno Atkins down. I yeah. doubled up. Give me some other ones. Uh, Brandon Graham, you, you, you have a. You oh, I, I, I 
said, I don't know about Brandon Graham yeah. just because of... Uh, well, you don't like him because he's costing you lunch every year. Yeah, but, it'd be nice if you get 10 sacks again. Right. But Are we Brand- doing that again this year? Every year. But Brand- no, I think... Because it gets more likely that I win from here I'm, on. I'm over. <laughs> I'm over it. Uh, but Brandon Graham's been the, one of the best pass rushers of his generation. He's never been Von Miller, but he, again, like he's the Joe Staley of pass rushers, right? He's always been that next, the best of the next year down and never got the credit he deserves because he doesn't get 10 sacks a season. Yeah, I agree. So there are some other interesting defensive names on this list, guys who were drafted between 06 and 12. And so they obviously had their entire career during the PFF era. Guys like Brandon Graham, 91.9 career pass rush grade for him. Cameron Wake, 93.7 pass rush grade during his career. Was never a great run defender. And both guys played over 6,000 snaps, Wake and Graham. They're actually very similar from a grading Graham has three seasons with a PFF grade above 90. He's got another one of 88.6. He's got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine straight years with a PFF grade above 80. Um, and the only years that he hadn't take that were essentially a lost season to injury and his rookie year. So, I mean, Brandon Graham's about as good as it gets for a guy that was never Von Miller. So are we going to – the PFF Hall of Fame here, this isn't the PFF Hall very good either. No. So I'm looking at like the highest graded defensive players, you know, in the PFF era who were, you know, drafted 06 to, to 12. There are some interesting, very good names. Uh, Calais Campbell, you wrote on this list. Campbell started out slow in his career and became... Not even slow, just not... Like, he had all of his best play after 30. Which is just very unlikely. I mean, that's incredible. And he's done it at multiple positions. Not the multiple alignments, like actually played three-tech for the majority of seasons. He's played edge for the majority of seasons and played extremely well. But it's not that the, like... The stuff before he turned 30 wasn't bad. It was just not, it just wasn't like arguably the best defensive lineman in the NFL other than Aaron Donald. Cameron Jordan, similar career path, started out a little slow and then became a 90 plus caliber player for a few years. Uh, The great Brent Grimes. Don't forget Grimes was was just an excellent corner. We, you know, whatever we had to deal with, with uh, his wife and getting attacked on social media like everyone else did. Grimes is also... Grimes was also the poster child for like that undersized corner that can still hang outside. Like yeah, NFL like, NFL put up a tweet based off PFF data that said um, Tyler Lockett has never dropped a pass in the red zone, maybe, whatever it was. Anyway, the point was ty- like teams should be analyzing Tyler Lockett for what is it about him that means a 5 foot 10, 180 pound guy can thrive on the outside at the NFL level because that's usually the thing, right? You find a 5'10", 180-pound wide receiver in college, and you're like, that guy's a slot player. Right. Brent Grimes is the same thing for cornerbacks. Like, you should look at Brent Grimes, and you're like, how did this guy survive and thrive against guys that were 50 pounds bigger than him and, you know, several inches in height, length, all those kinds of things? Grimes was legit. Yeah, so there are some other good names here for guys that are in that that are in this mix. Cameron Hayward, you mentioned. Do we mention off air? Cameron Hayward has become one of the better interior defensive linemen for the Steelers. Fletcher Cox. Cam- Cameron Hayward is on the Calais Campbell track of started playing like the best defensive lineman in the NFL, like your five. Donald, right. When he turned thirty, yeah. same thing, right? He's had four straight amazing seasons. Wait, I think. How old is he? Thirty-four. He is not that old. He's pretty old. You're way off here. I mean, Kyle Williams is only 38. Right. He's 32. So, so yeah, he started. And he's had like the best two seasons of his career 
the last maybe. two years. Maybe you're right. Um, yeah, he's like if he continues another couple of years, he's in that that ballpark as well. Uh, Levante David drafted in 2012. Yeah. And then how about the two 49ers linebackers, Patrick Willis and Navarro Bowman, yep. both 90-plus career PFF grades. Patrick Willis probably goes to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He was the – Yeah, I think he so. was, People see him as this Ray Lewis type. And I mean, he was. He was. I mean, yeah. he played incredible football. But Bowman was, like, right there with him. I think – And they were as interchangeable as it gets as far as that old-school 3-4 inside backers. I think you can make a strong case for the, the following linebackers – Patrick Willis, Navarro Bowman, uh, Bobby Wagner, Luke Keekley, and Levante David. By the way, is Bobby coming up at the end of the show here? We've been told. Full disclosure. That we're Bobby recording will... early again, and we have a scheduled Bobby Wagner interview yes. potentially on this show. As of now. But I, I will learn from past mistakes. Uh -huh. I will not tease it. As of now, there is a Bobby Wagner interview scheduled to be recorded, which will be attached to this particular podcast and we wanted to make sense we wanted to have him at the at the tail end of the pff 50 yeah. when he was number eight overall so we want to attach it to the pff hall of fame you know episode here where bobby wagner might be uh he might get a green gold ish jacket or whatever we decide green, to come up with now i can't be held responsible for whether or not bobby actually materializes this time i'm just saying as of now with all the information that i currently have i refuse to tease it it will be happening Hall of uh, the PFF Hall of Very Good would include guys like Jarrell Casey, yeah, Carlos Dunlap, Gerald McCoy, Gerald, yeah, he had some peaks. Sue, they were really good. Dominican Sue, KJ Wright with a linebacker, yeah, KJ Wright, Tambaha Lee, Tambaha Lee, Linval Joseph, Cameron Wake All is a really time. interesting one actually because he might have been the best pure pass rusher in the league for a long period of time before that group of Von Miller. Etc. arrived and just took it over. Yeah, Cameron Wake's career pass rush grade is higher than J.J. Watt's, right. by the way. Now, Watt, exceptional run defender. So it's a completely, you know, you can't just, just look at that one number. But Cameron Wake, when we're talking about career pass rush grade of these guys, 06 to 12, it's Vaughn yeah. Miller, then Cameron Wake, to your point. Right, and Wake's, like, I mean, his career grade wasn't helped by the last couple of years where he hung on a bit and was still the most productive pass rusher on his team. But what is that? Like one, two, three, four, five, six seasons with a pass rushing grade above 90. Uh, another one of 88.6. Um, he was like, look at that run of pressures. <laughs> it's like absurd. 81, 86, 71, 65. He was a truly dominant pass rusher. And a guy who I just love his story where you know CFL wasn't uh, an attractive, wasn't a prospect, a big prospect coming into the, the draft, went to the CFL, got signed to the Dolphins, and then was getting outsnapped by Joey Porter, who was playing at the, for the Dolphins at that point. And at that stage, 2009, PFF was saying, you need to take this guy, your Hall of Fame player, Joey Porter, and sit him down because the dude behind him Cameron Wake is destroying him in terms of pressure rate. And this was back when Joey Porter was getting like 15 sacks for the Dolphins. But it was one of those seasons where 15 sacks represented like 50% of his pressure, right? He just had a year where every pressure he got was a sack. Whereas Cameron Wake sitting behind him was just destroying people in terms of pressure rate and was beating guys to get his pressure. And then as soon as the Dolphins did scale up his, his use, and put him out there for 900 snaps, exactly the same thing happened. Continued to be 
one of the most dominant pass rush forces in the NFL. A couple more names to highlight here. Geno Atkins and Justin Houston. I think both of those guys, I, I don't think they're going to the Hall of Fame, right? No. But they might be at the high end of the PFF Hall of Fame. Geno Atkins was pre-Aaron Donald prototype. I feel a little bit sorry for Geno Atkins because I think Aaron Donald has ruined the perception of Geno Atkins because Donald come in and just changed everything. That's what Watt did to Justin Smith. Remember? Yeah. Because Justin right. Smith was the guy that we were like, oh, look at PFF guy is yeah. Justin Smith. And then J.J. Watt was like a bigger, faster, stronger version of Justin Smith and destroyed everything he well, did. Well, J.J. Watt completely changed our perception of like how good a player at that position could be. Um, Geno Atkins, I think, had already done that. Uh, and Donald just came along and like was better across the board. I always use this, this comparison um, to make this point. And it's, it's a terrible one because it's a really niche thing that about seven people understand. But Good. Uh, motor, mo motorcycle racing, motorcycle racing. There was off to a good start. Valentino Rossi, right? Yeah, greatest motorcycle racer of all time. Has won God knows how many championships. Still racing despite being like forty-five years old. There was a dude before uh, Rossi came along called Max Biaggi. Max Biaggi had won like every size of bike up to the MotoGPs. I think he'd won a MotoGP title. He was the best guy around. And then Rossi rocked up. And from that point on, Max Piaggi was the second best rider in the world for the rest of his career, right? And you could tell that it drove him batshit insane. Every single race, Rossi would just hang around behind him and then like the last lap, win the race, right? Just overtake him, win. And it drove Piaggi absolutely crazy. But... Like, there must be something truly maddening to that, to be like, any other era, I would be the best guy in the world. And I would be the guy for whom the adulation is showering down and praise would be raining from the skies. It would be glorious to be me. But right now, I'm just number two behind this dude who's the best in the world. That is basically Geno Atkins, right? He had, okay, he got a, a head start, but that 2012 season is still one of the best seasons we've ever seen from an interior pass rusher. Then Donald rocks up in what, 2014? And from that point on, anything Gino does is just irrelevant. Like you're you're really good. You had three straight years of double digit sacks from the interior. Nobody cares because Aaron Donald was better. Would you uh, would you argue the same for Justin Houston too? Because he's as an edge, once JJ Watt moved to the edge, okay, he's behind Watt. He's probably behind he's behind Vaughn Miller. I, and uh, I think he's and he's behind but I think Khalil he's, Mack. When he's he behind a up. bunch of guys. Whereas G, the, the reason I feel sorry for Gino is because he was clearly he the second the best guy for a long period of time. And if you like, again, any other era, Gino Smith probably would have been the best pass rusher in the NFL on Atkins. the interior. Yeah. yeah, Gino Atkins would have been the the best pass rusher on the interior for a number of years in the NFL. But because he got unfortunately timed with Aaron Donald, you get your your forgotten man. So we're gonna have to put like an actual team together for this thing, huh? Are we? I think I think it's not today, but at some point we're gonna. Now that we've named like a million players, we're gonna have to make some some hard decisions. Well, we also I think for the if we're gonna do an actual PFF Hall of Fame, we need to make the decision about whether because I think we probably should include the guys that are shoe ins shoe ins for the actual Hall of Fame. Sure. The reason we didn't is because it would make bad discussion for a podcast, right? Is Joe Thomas in the PFF right. Hall of Fame? Yes, yes, he is. Yes. Next, like it's just it's not good, right? Is Megatron a Hall of Fame player? Yes. Are we going to send these guys? We're going to send them some uh, 
busts and I stuff. Mean, I don't control that budget. You're going to have to talk to the higher ups. Um, but I think like if we create an actual PFF Hall of Fame, like clearly those guys should be on it, right? Right. We should we should do that. We you know should, what we should do? Figure out what that what that looks like. We should leap for. We should shortcut the real Hall of Fame by like what is this five year waiting period crap? I don't Just need do it that. as soon as you announce. We retirement. have the information. You might need five years to get your dossier together on insert <laughs> random player. We have all their information the second they retire. Like Pete Prisco pulls out, he pulls out his binder of Tony right. Baselli accolades every yeah, single yeah. year. Like, let me tell you about Tony and how he's the best left tackle. Look, this ever. guy needs to do some research on this guy to figure out how good he actually was. We have all of their snaps in the database dating back to 06, so we can cover that the second they retire. Andrew Whitworth can have his like ceremony. You know, I regretfully announced that I'm walking away from the game at the age of we'll 42 just, years we'll old. Like, we'll like quote tweet it and right. like, welcome to the PFF well, Hall exactly. of Fame. <laughs> Two seconds later, it's on Twitter. It's yeah. done. All right, let's do that. Let's have the PFF Hall of Fame ready to go. You know, Neil's been, Neil's been talking about this for a while. He wants in on this. Yeah. So let's do it. So you got to be the whole era. We can let him do the team and keep him busy for a whole week. That's true. That's true. <laughs> he does need stuff to do. He does need stuff to do, right? No, Neil's, Neil's working hard as always. A lot going on here at PFF behind the scenes. All right, what else you got here? Anyone else? You wrote down Devin Hester too. Yeah, which feels a little bit cheaty because you're putting him in as a return guy. Um, but I, Return guys are people too. They are. Oh, and speaking of special teamers. Pat, Pat McAfee. Let's get McAfee Hunter on the show. of the decade. McAfee's not doing much right now. Do you think he's got some time to join the show here? He's got his own shows. He's got his own shows. But, well, if we, tell him he's on, if we tell him he's in the PFF Hall of Fame, we might be able to get him in. He was keen If to, we could get him in the studio, he'd probably do like a little uh, shooting star press through the table or something. Maybe. That's what he does. I now. don't know if we want to destroy this table with it. I would sacrifice the table in order to have. This isn't like one of those, you know, folding tables that the Bills guys throw themselves through. Like this thing's got some heft. It's to not it. a, what we call a working table. Right. Sam. The uh, working table's going on. I mean, I'm not saying it wouldn't cheating. snap as well. I'm just saying it might do you some more harm on the way down. Like, particularly if you look yeah. at how these legs are constructed, those, oh, yeah, those are support. Those are not going away easy. Yeah. So if. Um, now you, I was, you would go through it anyway. But it might take out a kidney was, on the way down. I was thinking some of the potential, you know, what could Steve do for the charity thing? Go through the table? No, I was thinking Bill's related stuff. Like I'll wear a Josh Allen jersey or oh. dress up like Josh Allen. Okay. Or maybe as long as Josh Allen has a 90 plus PFF grade, like I got to rock some Allen gear. Like we'll have this like running 16 game rolling grade. And as long as he's above 90, you know, I like Josh the idea Allen. of you having to wear a Josh Allen jersey signing the Josh Allen but apology I'll, form. Yeah. And I'll sign, you know, so maybe that's it, right? So that's a good one. I think I'd sign the form. I And I can also rock Josh Allen gear. As long as his last 16 games, he's like an elite player or something like that, I'll rock it. I think an Allen jersey. I just, I, no, I think we just do it as that's your thing for the, for that show. You have to wear a Josh Allen jersey, sign the sign apology, the apology form. form. That's, let's get Bill's, Ma Bill's Mafia loves to give to charity too. So, so let's get them yeah, involved yeah. here. Um, so Devin Hester, I think, and I'm going to, let's put in uh, Cordero Patterson as well, because that way we can solve this problem that seems to break people's brains Who's every better? time it comes up. Devin Hester is the best punt returner in NFL history. Cordero Patterson is the best kick returner. But everybody remembers Hester kicking off, leading off, you know, the, the kickoff, kickoff return to start the Super Bowl. Yeah, that's not saying he never scored a kickoff touchdown, but like he wasn't that good as a kickoff return guy. They are different skill sets. Cordero Patterson is the best kick returner in NFL history. That guy is now tied, I think, right, for the most kick return touchdowns in NFL history. Will probably break it at some point in his career. Yeah. In an era where they've tried to basically eliminate that play from the game, right? If you look at the number of returns that Patterson has had to get that touchdown record, Compared with, I think, is Josh Cribbs the guy that he's tied with? 
He's like a half the returns as Josh Cribbs. Like, the Cordero Patterson is ridiculous as a kick returner. Yes. Devin Hester, ridiculous as a punt returner. All right, so there you go. It's a PFF Hall of Fame. Um, right now, we might go to Bobby Wagner. We might not. <laughs> All right, and then we're gonna then we're gonna record an outro, Sam. Yeah, and well, I'm gonna is... say you. We may have heard from Bobby Wagner. We may not have. And it's not even we, right? It's just me. You're not even gonna be here. You're gonna go to it. Yeah. yeah. So I might be going to Bobby Wagner right now, and then we will be returning. And now we're back, either from a Bobby Wagner interview that you did, which was great, or just from that fantastic, segway. brilliant, even. Yeah. Or we're just you know looking like idiots. No, no, no. We just, just we just came back from the segue. We came back from the segue. Yeah. yeah, it was great. Well, that was a good show. Good show. Happy Thursday, everybody, because it's Thursday, Sam. Today's <laughs> Thursday. It is Thursday. We're not. Uh huh. It's absolutely Thursday. There's no recording. It's what we are. Um, but yeah, we'll be back on Monday because today's Thursday. We'll be back on Monday with some more great PFF NFL podcast. That's it. Yeah. Wave. See ya.